The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 182 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We really appreciate it. Before we get into this awesome, awesome episode, uh, there are two people I just want to thank right up front. And uh, the first one is Skylar Fleming. Skylar is our uh, social media manager. We did an episode with him a few weeks back. But uh, if you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and if you don't, why not? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. But if you do, you've noticed our our social media game is just 100 times better than it's ever been. And uh, Skyler puts up a lot of fun stuff. He puts up flashbacks to older episodes and uh, questions for our fans to answer and just does such a great job. It's such a pleasure to work with Skyler. He is such a good man. Thank you, Skyler. And the second is Gene Chittister, who produces this show. Gene is tireless and fearless in reaching out and getting us just the best guests. He does such a good job so that I can just show up and do the interviews. And he has just lined up some amazing people. I'm so excited. And it is such a pleasure to work with Gene, who's become a dear friend. And I just appreciate these two brothers of mine so much in all the work that they do. And speaking of Gene lining up guests, uh, today when he told me who we were having on the show, I don't know how to do a cartwheel, but I'm pretty sure that if I did, I would have done a cartwheel right there on the spot. Mark Pope is the head coach for BYU basketball. And if you're a longtime listener to the show, you know how much I love my basketball. He is a a former NCAA star, a former NBA star, and we just had the best time talking to Mark. He's an amazing guy. And this episode is a little bit longer than most episodes. Uh, It's 15 or 20 minutes longer in the conversation. You may be thinking to yourself, well, why didn't you just edit it down? I did. (laughs) I just couldn't couldn't edit it down anymore. I took out a little bit, but uh, for the most part, just everything he said is just amazing. And it's funny because we actually talked for about 20 minutes or so before we ever started recording. And then we talked for a good 20 minutes or so after we were done recording. He has an incredible energy. I just absolutely love Mark, and you will love this conversation. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, saying goodbye. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, you talk about just a thrill for our listeners who have listened over the the last hundred plus episodes that we've done. You know there's one thing that I love. It is basketball. I live for basketball and uh, could not love it more. And my guest today, what a thrill. Mark Pope, welcome to the show. Guys, I'm so happy to be here. We just spent 20 minutes pre-show talking with Gene and Sean. And I'm like, man, I, I wish we had recorded that. Like you guys are <laughs> unbelievable and super inspiring. And 
it's it's so fun to be able to talk about hoops and the gospel. So I'm really happy to be on, guys. I, I tell you, man, if if we were doing barbecue, we would have all of my greatest loves. We'd be talking basketball, the gospel, and barbecue, and my life couldn't get better. So uh, for as all of you know, Mark Pope is the uh, head coach for BYU basketball, uh, but much more than that. I mean, he is a uh, an NCAA national title winner. He uh, was a high school star, college star, played in the NBA, has coached uh, at a very high level now, and we're going to talk about all of it. But let's go way back with you, Mark. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Well, I I was born in Nebraska, lived there for six months, just long enough to be indoctrinated into the (laughs) Nebraska Cornhusker family. Uh, So diehard Cornhusker fan for the first 18 years of my life, and then six months and we moved to New York. Uh, lived in Westchester County, just north of the city, just south of the Putnam County line. Uh, you know, drove 45 minutes every Sunday to church and uh, had an unbelievable uh, life there. My dad worked in the city. And so we just had such a, it was such a wonderful experience about meeting every kind of person from every background and, and philosophy and belief and, and race and religion. It was, it just is such a magical place. And then, um, when I was um, going through middle school and high school, we moved to Seattle, Washington, all the way across the country and and had a beautiful experience there and, and uh, just a great childhood. Mom and dad are extraordinary people. I uh, was blessed to have three older brothers that beat me up every single day <laughs> and two younger sisters that um, uh, didn't beat me up physically, but took shots at me mentally. And so it, it was it was the perfect idyllic childhood. That is awesome. And obviously you mentioned you grew up in the church, so you had that whole background. And when you, when you headed into uh, Seattle, do you consider Seattle kind of more your home or do you, do you consider any of it your home? Oh, you know, we've been vagabonds for so long. In yeah. fact, the, the, actually, I think I haven't done the calculation. I might've lived in Utah longer than I've lived anywhere else <laughs> in my life consecutively. Actually, it's, it's really close. So um, we, we've kind of lived all over the, in, uh, you know, uh, overseas, uh, we've lived in, I don't know, 10 different States here in the U S or 12. And, uh, but we landed here in Utah 10 or 11 years ago. And so actually, you know, home is kind of where yeah. Leanne is, and I have four daughters. It's, it's where we are. And so, um, I, I guess we're fortunate that everywhere that we are gets to be home. Like we're really blessed that way. That is beautiful. What age were you when you discovered basketball? Um, well, I started it out when I was young. First love was, uh, was track and cross country. I was a middle distance runner. And, um, uh, you know, my first experience with that was, uh, when I was in third grade, my dad, uh, just, you know, thought, man, you got to do something with your life. So he put me in a fun run 5k and, uh, it was, it was, uh, really hard and really, really fun at the same time. And, and I, I ran pretty well. And there was a track coach there that was like, hey, you got to jump in with us. Let's go. And started running uh, AAU track and, and was like we were traveling all over the country competing. And wow. Um, so that was kind of my that was my childhood. I always dreamed of running. You know, my hero, if you guys, rec- Gene, I'm trusting you're going to know this name. My hero, my first athletic hero was Sebastian Coe the great 800 meter runner from great Britain. Uh, and, and so it's my dream to run the Olympics as a child. And um, so I, I, you know, and I started of course was playing basketball too uh, every year, just w- with rec league and kind of the transition took place um, 
my freshman and sophomore year in college, I was getting taller and taller and slower and slower and uglier and uglier. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and my high school coach, um, after my freshman year, I was on a track and cross country and basketball all three seasons. And he was like, Mark, listen, you have a chance to do this. It's time to shut it down and do this full time year round. And so after that, that's what I did. And then basketball has certainly blessed my life and, and our whole family's life since then. So, so when did your height kick in? So I was always tall. Uh, mm. I think in, you know, I, I mean, I just, you know, I was just, I was, I think I came out of the womb pretty tall. And so <laughs> I never had a massive growth spurt. It was, it was just kind of, uh, I, I was just accustomed to it and grew up that way. And, um, and, and, you know, there are times uh, when, you know, I'm six, nine, which actually, with the, the people I ended up spending a lot of time with that was on the shorter side. But, but when I was a child, it was, uh, you know, there were moments where I was like, ah, I don't know if I like being this tall because, you know, I always stick out every, every school picture, you know, on my head taller than everybody else. But, um, it's something that has just been such a, you know, we're all blessed with gifts and that certainly has been one of mine. Oh, that's just awesome. So you didn't get serious about basketball until high school. Well, I was playing a lot. My dad was my coach. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, such a great teacher. Mm. Uh, you know, my dad, I'll tell you, you know, he's taught me so many great lessons. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you two lessons he taught me. So one was, was uh, when I was in third grade, we started playing a, a boys and girls club rec league in Seattle. And um, it was my first year there. And I was running, I was running a lot, but also playing during the basketball season. And so we were allowed, we played one game every Saturday. And we were allowed one practice at the Boys and Girls Club. So that's what every team did. Well, I don't know if it was against the rules or not, but my dad quietly managed to get two extra practices a week in the church building. And above <laughs> the 5th Ward Church building, sorry, Bishop Bardsley, but we stuck in there with the team. You know, it was, you know, we were the only... We only met, you know, we, it was fun because we were bringing all all these kids into into the church that, that were not members of the church, and and um and it was such an unbelievable lesson for me to see how that translated that extra work translated in great things, um and and that was the first of many many times where my dad taught me these invaluable lessons. But so in that sense, you know, we were taking it a little bit seriously, but really learning a lot. And then of course, uh, you know. The seventh and eighth and ninth grade, it, it became more and more of a dominating passion to the point where uh, it was it was a 24 seven prospect, um, you know, throughout high school. So when you were playing high school ball, you were playing at a high level. There's high school ball. Then there's high school ball with the expectation that you're going to go on to a big school as you did and everything else. How much did you feel that pressure? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I, I've never been a guy that manages pressure really well. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I just, it just kind of internalized it and it, it, it turns out to be a really, really driving force, but it's also, it, it also can be exhausting and sometimes debilitating. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think most of the pressure was self-inflicted about, about just having this deep desire uh, I don't know if it's healthy or not, but I just I just wanted so badly to be a competent basketball player. Mm. Um, and then as I got into teams, I wanted so desperately to not let down my team. And for a lot of teams when I was young, I was carrying an, an incredible load on the team, um, not just in terms of of um, 
kind of uh, uh, contributions on the court, but also in terms of kind of trying to keep teams together and trying to manage personalities and, and make sure everybody felt a part of things. And um, I was blessed with great coaches. And so all that pressure uh, is, pressure. I, you know, I've, I've learned to love it. You know what happens? And I tell my team this all the time, all the time is like you earn the right to feel pressure. Because yeah. most of us get to go through our lives and never feel that pressure. And the only time you feel pressure, I've actually had some close coaches that were close to me that were almost like, ah, I, I enjoy the season so much when we're kind of out of the hunt because the pressure goes, I think that's the worst time. Like, I feel, I feel like you're, you know, your life's not right if you haven't earned the right to feel immense pressure. It's not that you like the pressure. You know, it, it's hard to deal with. But, man, it's satisfying when you earn it and then you get to overcome it and get through it. Um, pressure, I think, is a beautiful thing in our lives. I think it's a real gift. And it, I think it's something we earn. In high school, you're playing basketball. You're serving in the church. You got friends. You got a social life. You also, academically, from what I've read, you were quite a student as well. How do you find that balance when you're in high school? Um, I didn't. Uh, you know, <laughs> we just kind of plowed through, through and did the best we could. Um, you know, my priorities really, um, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, it was, you know, as we got farther along in basketball, that kind of ruled the roost, right? It was, it, that was, you know, um, you know, sacrifice, sacre ficio, right? The Latin ficio is to make and, and sacre is sacred. And so, um I think what we do is, is, you know, again, mom and dad, don't let your kids listen to this until, until they're ready. But <laughs> I think that we make things sacred by, by sacrificing for them. Mm. Um, and, and my pursuit of this game of basketball kind of since, you know, my sophomore year when it just overtook my life has been really serious. So, um, so super important, uh, you know, Clearly, my academics were really important to me, um, but I didn't do a ton extra. I did really well in school, but I wasn't going out of my way to find extra opportunities because everything was going into, into basketball. And in terms of my testimony, I was like, when I was young, you know, I was probably not unlike some handful of, of young people where I was pretty apathetic. I was, you know, I was I was kind of say, you know, I was I wasn't really breaking any commandments or doing anything like that but i wasn't i was not growing i wasn't mm. i wasn't giving it the time that it that certainly it is due and deserves and and i think um had i done that i, I probably would have actually um, experienced more basketball success i think that balance is important you know it's interesting regarding balance uh is is it like a, a a larger outlook i have a really really dear friend who's a great mentor to me as an incredibly successful ceo and we actually He's super generous. Time to time, we'll go. Um, we both like to ride bikes up in the mountains, and and uh, we'll go sometimes. And and I get to just pummel him with questions the whole time. I'm always looking for advice. And he said this to me about balance. And he actually had heard this from his uh, mission president when he was serving. He said, um, "Maybe our goal, maybe just positive this question. Maybe our goal is not to have a balanced life where every single day we check every single box and make sure that we've done every single thing. Because really, what that's going to mean is that every single thing we're performing average, mm. because you just are." He said, "Maybe, maybe another way to look at it, maybe is." that instead of a balanced life, we're looking at a balanced lifetime. Mm. There's a time and season to lose ourselves 100% mm. 
in some certain pursuit that there's times and seasons, you know, I think about uh, far be it from me to make any assumptions about president Nelson's life. I think he's, uh, I'm so grateful for his leadership. I am so grateful for his leadership, especially in these times. His leadership has been in- incredible. And it just is, it's a voice that you just wish the whole world would would listen to, right? Mm-hmm. I wish members of the church would listen to his voice. I wish <laughs> I would listen to his voice better. But right. uh, you think about him and like, you know, I, I had experience in medical school. I know what that is. I got to see residency up close and personal there's no balance there in terms of the time right what you do and then he obviously went on to do extraordinary he was one of the leading voices in the world in medicine and so certainly his time commitment in that part of his life maybe wouldn't have been like i checked every single box with equal time every single day but certainly from the cheap seats if you looked at his life, you'd, you'd say he lived one of the most balanced lifetimes ever. Yeah. And also did everything in an extraordinary way, which is just, man, he's just, he's one of my heroes. That's a beautiful thought, you know, that there are seasons, there are seasons and there are times where we've got to buckle down and do and put everything into certain things. But I like that. I like that thought a lot. So as you get into your senior year now, you've probably got scouts checking you out trying to figure out what you're going to do for college. How did you make the decision and tell us where you ended up going to college? Well, I'll tell you some fun stories. So, so recruiting was different then. Every single recruit, nobody signed early. Everybody got recruited. Yeah, there wasn't, the recruiting window wasn't so tight. So the first school that started recruiting me really, really hard was in seventh grade. And there was no limit on phone calls or anything like that. And, um, and so it, it all builds up to the fall of your before your the, the beginning of your senior year. And once you start school, you have all the home visits. After you have all the home visits, which are three or four hour ordeals, it takes so much time. Then you narrow it down to five schools and then you go on your five visits. So, you know, I think we we narrowed it down to 11 home visits and then five visits. And, and that process was super fun. You know, coaches could come. There were times when they could come where they really couldn't talk to us. Like, so we would be out doing uh, preseason conditioning on the track and there would be, you know, 12 or 15 big time college coaches. They're they're big time coach because they go recruit everybody. Right. I'll never forget one of our first practices during the season. I've told this story several times and, and in walks Mike Montgomery, the head coach of the Stanford Cardinals. No kidding. It was one of the first coaches to walk into our gym. Mm. And so, of course, all my teammates recognized it too. And there kind of came a new energy in the gym as we're doing this warm-up drill, which is just, it's a continuous layup drill where you get the ball out of the hoop, pass to out of bounds at the free throw line, run full court, get the ball back, pass to the other free throw line, get the ball back and shoot a layup. And then the next guy goes, you keep running through. So I'm like, hey. Mike Montgomery just walked in my gym. I'm going to put on a show. <laughs> so when my turn comes up, I pass the first guy, run full sprint, pass the second guy. And then I'm like, I take off outside the free throw line. I cock the ball back behind my head and I go to dunk it. But something uh, spectacular happened. For some reason, I didn't actually make it all the way to the rim. So if you know what I mean when I say you got hung, ball squarely hits the rim. 
I go straight down, land on my knees and skid across the floor. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the drill stops. All my guys break out in super nervous, uncomfortable laughter. <laughs> and then two minutes later, Mike Montgomery walked out of the gym. I never heard from him again. Oh, <laughs> that is so, a great story. Oh, that's fantastic. I tell you, the recruiting was really fun and super stressful. You yeah. know, it got to a point in the fall between the home visits and the official visits. Um, it just got so overwhelming. And I remember distinctly getting to a point where I was like, I feel like I'm missing my whole senior year. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not able to do anything with friends. I'm not able to train the way I normally train. Like normally I was in the gym all afternoon and all evening. I was, you know, I was sitting in my living room talking to coaches. And so it was a hard process, but it's a really wonderful process. And for all those coaches, the time to kind of come talk to me, my family, I'll forever be grateful to those guys. Man, that is a wild, wild time. So uh, tell us where you finally decided to go to college. So so uh, ultimately, I chose to stay home. Chose yeah. to go to University of Washington. Uh, there was a coach there that I'd fallen in love with. He was a former FBI narcotics officer. Had been a terrific player in his own right. Played at the University of Washington. Then had most recently led St. Mary's to a top 20 finish. Mm. And then came to... University of Washington is alma mater and he was mean and ornery and I loved him. Like I still love him like a second father. We still keep in, in, in contact. And, you know, he's one of those guys where we would do conditioning. We would go do our conditioning, but the only difference was he made us run with these huge bricks in our hands, like literally. So we would do conditioning on the track. Then we do long run conditioning. So we go do a three to five mile run and you had to carry bricks in your hands the whole time. Guys come back, bloodied up, taped, and he just loved it. He loved every second of it. <laughs> so I ended up going to University of Washington. Had a, had a really incredible and tough experience there for a couple of years. Yeah, I've been on that campus. Absolutely stunning. What a beautiful campus. I'm not sure there's a more beautiful campus. Than me. It, it is incredible. It really is beautiful. Was the transition, because I've, I've heard a lot of guys talk about you level up from high school where you're like, you can kind of be a little bit dominant in the high school setting. Then you level up to college and the transition of all of a sudden, the, the basketball is at a much higher level. Did you find that? Um, you certainly, I mean, the talent level is way higher. Um, I, you know, there were a lot of changes for me that were hard. Uh, you know, it was really hard for me. You know, um, I had this incredible coach in high school, Rich Belcher, who's one of the all-time winningest basketball coaches in, in Washington State history and was just such an incredible uh, – he put – you know, he he was a program builder, right? Mm. Like, you know, our whole life as a team resolved, re- revolved around each other in the game and and everybody was all in and then i went to washington and we had a little bit of a dysfunctional unit we had guys sideways everywhere and so actually the hardest thing for me there was the locker room in terms of it was just in terms of like all of us getting buy-in i thought was so it was just so tough and so frustrating there was actually sometimes a negative pressure to kind of get extra work in and do the right thing in terms of the game and so um, that was really tough. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I failed, like I failed miserably. I mean, I won a lot of individual awards, but, but, um, we ended up, 
you know, we ended up not being able to win enough to even save coach's job. He got fired after my sophomore year. And it was, you know, I say this all the time. It was the most painful experience I've ever had in basketball where despite everything I could give to the game and try and give to the team, I, I was not good enough to help us win the way we had to win to save his job. It was awful. Actually, it was a lot of tears and a, a lot of sadness and a lot of guilt and failure and, uh, and, and, and frustration. It, it was a, it was a really tough two years. There's no, no, no two ways about it. Okay. So then this leads you to go to Kentucky. What was, uh, what was the decision to go to Kentucky? It was a really hard decision. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, I was getting a lot of pressure from, uh, you know, from people around the program, uh, you know, there's kind of, there were things in chaos, um, a lot of people not happy with me. So try to make as quick a decision I could. And ultimately it came down to, you know, I had been um, in the environment with all the good and bad that came from Washington. And I actually wanted to go see if I could play with the best guys in the country. That's what I just did. Ultimately, that's what I wanted to go see if I was good enough to go compete with those guys. There was a hundred other reasons, but that better rock reason. Yeah. How was, I mean, we talked about pressure before. You, when you talk about the big universities with basketball programs, I don't know. I mean, is it is there bigger than Kentucky? I mean, you're talking about a team that just every single year is dominant. I mean, they're right in there, you know? Yep. Um, it, it is a ton of pressure. Um, the expectations, if you don't win a national championship, you failed, period. It's just that is the expectation, and and that is that's your job as a as a basketball player. There's you got to win, and you got to win the whole thing, right? Sweet sixteens. They don't put up banners for sweet sixteens or final fours. They put up championship banners, and um, and so it's a really special place. Um, pressure and and uh, the momentum had been growing. Coach Patino had been there for several years, and um, you know they had the great run uh, when they lost to to Duke in the to go to the final four and, sure. and um, you know, uh, the expectations and the care of the people in that community is so deep. It's like, it's like built into their soul that Kentucky basketball matters and it's important. And as a basketball player, there's nothing better in the world than to be able to share this game with all those people who literally might care just as deeply as you do as a player. It's a, it, it's a really, really special place. It was an incredible honor to get to compete for that team, put on that jersey. Yeah, and that was an awesome, I mean, an awesome time, an awesome team. And we'll kind of talk about where that culminated in a second. But I want to dive into being a Latter-day Saint, playing on a Kentucky championship team. Like, uh, were you the only Latter-day Saint on your team? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, how is that, and how much does the rest of the team know this? I'm sure when we talk about the pros, it's going to come out a little bit more. Uh, but how, you know, uh, how, how much of an experience was that you as quote the Mormon? Well, it's interesting because I was really searching for. I was really still searching for my faith. Like I had an incredible faith experience, like a faith journey in Kentucky that culminated. Uh, kind of in 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 the last year of my time there, um, really kind of finding my a deep hard earned testimony for the first time in my life. With that said, 
I was still doing my best and falling short all the time, but doing my best to, um, to maintain the standards that I've been taught at home that come straight from the gospel, just kind of the, some of the surface standards about not drinking and not smoking and, and, and staying chaste before marriage. I, I got there, I'm there all summer. And then it turns out that at Kentucky, the Lexington Herald uh, on media day, they dedicate the entire newspaper, the entire sports page. I know no one knows what a newspaper is anymore, but <laughs> the, the entire sports page is, is just like all Kentucky basketball for media day. I mean, it's that important in that state. And so um, it, it's like every single player gets a headlined article. So when I first got there, I met one of the great spiritual mentors in my life, Max Apple, who is a Catholic man who came to run a Bible study for me and a couple of players um, at the University of Kentucky. Jeff Shepard and Walter McCarty and myself were the three guys, all coming from different backgrounds, different faith places. Um, we did a Bible study that Max ran. It was such a great thing. And we started going around to schools and youth groups and whatever, and just kind of sharing a message of whatever faith we had. And so that was the place that I went to all the time is I'm like, Hey guys, you know, I talked to a youth group and I would say, you know, listen, I know you're going to feel pressure to drink. I know you feel pressure to do stuff. I know you'd feel pressure to engage in intimate relationships with girls or boys. And I just want you to know for my part, I'm not doing any of them. Right. And, and like, it's a, it's a, it's a, just a, general faith-based kind of commitment that I made to myself. So flip forward, fine. It's small groups. It's contained. I get to use the words that I'm comfortable with. It's all, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm being supportive to these kids. So we get to the day after media day and the paper comes up like, ah, I want to go see what, you know, these guys wrote about me. Flip open the paper headline Pope, a virgin says it's okay to be different. (laughs) I kid you not, a headline <laughs> across the top of the paper. I broke, I'm in my I'm in the Wildcat Lodge in my room. I swear I broke into like a full on sweat. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I gotta I had to walk across campus to go to class. Oh and my so, gosh, so that's was, hilarious. There were a hundred moments like that where it actually turns into the greatest thing in the world. You know, the follow-up story that was such a surreal experience. So if you remember, Arkansas won the national championship. Then UCLA won the national championship. And then Kentucky won the national championship, 94, 95, and 96. And Arkansas and us were two of the best teams in the country. The SEC was by far the best league in the country during my tenure there. And and this uh, Bud Walton arena was – I mean, those fans were insane. So we would get there – and it would be like 40 minutes, you know, 40 minutes before the game, the whole student section full, much like at BYU, one of the only other schools that has a, a student section like that. But they would come prepared and they would cat call and heckle us. One guy would do it. Then everyone would cheer. And it was just, you know, they take shots every single guy. And you're kind of there in layup lines and shooting drills with the guys. And you're just trying to stay focused. But everybody is listening to everything they said because it's funny. And it's embarrassing. And you're just waiting <laughs> for your turn. So so the deal, you, you, only old people will know this, but there was a great singer, Madonna. She sang a song, <laughs> Like a Virgin. Yeah. So the, the first time they went at me, they're like, hey, Pope, you know Madonna's song, Like a Virgin? 
Well, you're not like a virgin. You are a virgin. The whole place bursts out laughing. Oh, that is uh, amazing. That is so funny. I'm looking at the 95-96 roster. Tony Delk, Nasr Mohammed, Antoine Walker, Ron Mercer, you. I mean, that was a powerhouse team. Yeah, so there's nine guys. Well, first of all, you talk about coaches. You know, my first year there, you know, the year before, I was with Jim and Billy. Like, actually, Billy Donovan was there. So you think about the guys I got to <laughs> yeah. learn from there. I mean, Coach Patino, all-time Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, Billy Donovan, who who won back-to-back national championships, one of the greatest players coach ever coached. Yeah, went on to coach the Thunder. Final four. Yeah. Yes. And I was with the Bulls, coach the head coach of the right. Bulls. And then Jim O'Brien, who went to coach the Celtics. And yeah. It's just had this incredible tenure. Uh, you know, we were around great, great basketball minds with incredible work ethic. And then the players, you know, we had nine guys from that team go on to play in the NBA, nine of our 12 guys. And, and our starting point guard actually didn't go play in the league. He got a call up right after the season to go try out for the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> really? Who was that? Yes, is uh, Anthony Epps, who, was a, who actually started as a walk-on and was maybe the most important piece of our team. So he started his career at Kentucky as a walk-on, eventually earned a scholarship, and became the starting point guard on a national championship team that was full of horses. And the truth is, is he was the guy stirring the drink. I mean, he was the, he was the guy in charge. He was just such a special personality. Such that is special unbelievable. Guy. That is so crazy. What is it like to win a national title? And then even more so, what is it like to win a national title at Kentucky? Yeah. And, and, you know, it'd been 20 years since we'd won one and, and Kentucky had been uh, given the death penalty actually for some violations that were pretty serious. And so coach Patino came and in his first two years, they weren't even allowed to play in the postseason. He had limited scholarships. And so it was a, it was a, it was, you know, I think the sports illustrated article was con- the cover of sports illustrated was Kentucky's shame or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So, so these Kentucky fans that care so deeply, um, you can imagine what it was like to finally climb back to the top of the mountain. Um, and for us individuals, players, it was, it was pretty epic too. For me, you know, this is my senior year. My junior year um, had, had ended in, in, in an epic failure with a, a number one seed. Uh, the final four was in Seattle my junior year. So we're playing in the Elite Eight against North Carolina, and we've been just stomping teams all season long. And and Carolina threw it threw in a zone, and it just got us sideways. We ended up losing. And um, Coach Patino made it a experience we would never forget. We came back from the game just devastated. I mean, we were just devastated. You know, you feel all the pressure about winning for all the people and winning for our team, feeling the expectation, feel like we finally got there. And coach, uh, we I think we watched the game twice, cover to cover, immediately mm-hmm. after, still in our game uniforms. And coach just um, was on a tirade the entire time. And then he brought us in the next morning. We didn't leave. He brought us back in the next morning and just crushed us that morning individually. Um, I'll never forget. I left that morning meeting with him feeling like I would never forgive him ever 
because I was so defeated. I was so devastated. And it just felt like he was piling on in, in like an unforgivable way. Like it was, it was awful. And, um, you know, it, it took a year for me to realize that that was all, you know, that, that wasn't happy for him, but he was trying to put something in us where there was going to be no chance and no, nothing put to chance the next year. And, and we had one of the greatest seasons in the history of college basketball. Yeah. Um, and it, it started post game of that loss to North Carolina. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it just culminated with, you know, I mean, I could talk about, you know, we, we win the national championship in the Meadowlands. I mean, we're essentially in New York, we're in New Jersey, but we're right across the water. And, and uh, a late night game, it was the last time that they played in a, in an NBA size arena, every final four, every, every championship has been in a dome since then. So you had the intimacy and tickets were being scouted for insane numbers and um, just all of the media of New York and the whole world was there. And we, you know, we played Syracuse in this national final. So that just doubled down on how great it was. And, and then we flew back the next afternoon in Kentucky and we got off the plane and there were thousands of people at the airport. We get on the bus after kind of spending an hour there. And it's, I don't know what it is, a five mile drive from the airport to, to UK. And the whole way is lined with cars bumper to bumper. Like people stand on a car with signs. And then we drove straight into Rupp Arena. It holds 24,000 people. And there was, it was standing room only. Drove the bus right to the center of the arena. And then got out and did it. It was like it was like just beyond words. It was it was it was really spectacular. That is so epic, huge. Uh, just what an awesome experience. And now it's time for the one of my favorite uh, nights of the year, the NBA draft. Uh, I watch the draft the way some people watch the Oscars. I watch it with a big bowl of popcorn <laughs> and making predictions and watching the trades. That's exactly yeah. how I do it. Uh, so. How exciting was the draft? Did you know that it was going to be the Pacers? Did you kind of know what was going to be happening? Or how did the draft night go? You know, I've been really blessed as a basketball player. I have no business. I had no business master championship team. I had no business playing in the NBA. And so when draft night came, I had three guys on my team that I knew were all going to be lottery picks. You know, maybe early, you know, maybe just barely outside the lottery. And I was the only other guy that was eligible off that team for the draft. And um, so I didn't have any expectations of getting drafted. I I had signed with a terrific agent, Mark Bortlestein, who was priority sports at the time. He's now one of the top agents in the world. And um, so obviously we spent a lot of time, went to a ton of workouts for teams. Um, And um, so I actually, I actually went out on a date that night, just trying to ignore it. And so you went so, out on a date on draft night. You didn't even watch the date, draft. Didn't even watch it. <laughs> so here's the trick, though. So we um, we went to dinner and then are driving back, and we got back in the car, and then the radio was just on, and so I, I heard Walter McCarty getting drafted, one of my teammates, and so then all of a sudden I just went totally sideways, and so I kind of ended the date early. <laughs> no plans. I have no family in Kentucky. And uh, I didn't want to go around a bunch of friends because I was like, oh, it's just going to be maybe it's going to be super disappointing. So I went down into the Memorial Coliseum where our locker room was, our practice gym. And I sat in there with 
a dear friend, uh, a maintenance guy who, you know, I was always in the gym late night. And so he would always be coming in and working and cleaning. And so I, I went in the locker room and he walked in and saw me and like came and sat down. And so, you know, we just kind of watched the end of the draft and miracle of miracles. You know, they call my name, I think at 52, 52 or whatever. And it was pretty special. Dude, second round. I mean, come on. That is exciting. That is Well, there's huge. only two rounds. And I think there was only like four or six picks left. So it was late. Yeah. But still, I mean, you were in the draft, not the no. auxiliary draft, not the. No, no. It was a draft. So let, let me tell you. So uh, Coach Patino actually was doing, he was actually on the broadcast. So he was with, like, now it's Jay Billis and whoever. I can't, I can't yeah. remember who was probably with Larry Nash, someone. But um, so Coach is on there. And so as soon as they call my name for the Indiana Pacers, they do a little high thing and then they go to the guys at the desk. And and so the, the lead guy says something, then Coach Patino is just like, he's just like, you can see he's just sweating. He's like, ah, oh, I'm just so grateful. He pulls out his rosary beads. He's like, for the last five things, I've just been rubbing my rosary beads saying, please let this kid get drafted. Oh, that's great. so awesome. So now you talk about going from one legendary franchise to another. I mean, if there's one place where they love basketball, maybe more than Kentucky, it's the entire state of Indiana, you know, and uh, their most famous citizen out of Indiana being Larry Bird. I mean, this is, this is just huge. Did you, how quickly did you go to uh, Indiana from there? So, you know, the draft, you, you leave like a week later. So, you know, draft is, late June. And then, and then you're in, in uh, rookie training camp, you know, 5th of July at the time. And so it was actually Larry Brown that drafted me. Larry Bird was not coaching yet. Mm, yeah. So Larry Brown drafted me and, and Donnie Walsh was the GM. You'll know I, the legendary Donnie Walsh, one of the yes, greatest of executives ever in the history of the NBA. Brilliant. Yeah. This was the only draft mistake he ever made. Oh, come on. And, uh, Stop. And, and so, <laughs> So I went to I went to rookie camp with those guys and it was just like it's just as like it's undescribable. I mean, you're with these great players and it was just all the rookies. Like they brought a bunch of and when I say rookie training camp, what I mean is like the rookie draft picks, a bunch of other undrafted rookies, and then like a bunch of vets that have been playing overseas. Three day mani camp, and then you go play in summer league. And it was unbelievable. It was just so it was so incredible. I mean, Larry Brown, one of the greatest coaches of one of the greatest. Time. Yeah, Larry Brown, amazing. Yeah. And so it was just, it was awesome. And, and we putting on NBA gear and wearing NBA socks and have Jerry West on your shoulder and the whole deal. And, and especially when I was such a, you know, I just always felt like such a guest. I was like, you know, I don't know if I was destined to do this. I just was lucky to kind of, I, I really always felt like I, like, I can't believe I get to do this. And then we're about halfway through summer league and my agent called me and he had a, a ridiculous deal overseas. It was back when they were signing huge contracts overseas for rookies. And um, so uh, we, we did a three-way with, with Donnie and Donnie was like, Hey, go, we keep your rights. We don't lose anything. You're not going to get to play on this team this year. We're all vets. And so, so it was, I was only with the team for three weeks and then I was gone. Yeah. So where did you end up going? So I went to Istanbul, Turkey, played for FS Pilsen. It was one of the top teams in Europe. FS Pilsen is a is a is a huge beer uh, alcohol company in uh, Europe. Uh, that was unbeknownst to me until I got there. We started working out. The gym is actually in the factory, and um, 
And it was, uh, it, it was such an incredible experience. I mean, I got so many memories and stories from it. And it was really hard too. you know, I, I was there for the first three months of the season. And then they fired me uh, at the beginning of the new year. And, you know, it was, it was, it was overwhelming, the whole experience there. And it was incredible. And there were great moments and an awful moment getting fired. And then coming home thinking, man, my career is over. Like it was, it was brutal. Did you feel like that was it? Like you were going to have to move on to something else? You know what? I, I didn't stop. I just remember thinking, if I can't play overseas, I'm never going to be able to make it in the league. Mm. That's that, that was my overwhelming feeling. Now I came and I and I I went to work in a way that was excruciating. You know, I had eight months to prepare for camp, and I still had this connection with the Pacers, and and so I didn't know what was going to happen, but. Uh, a, a, a dear friend um, also was a trainer at the time that was loosely affiliated with the Seattle Supersonics, gave me his time for eight months and in preparation to go back to rookie camp again with the Pacers, this time with new coach Larry Bird, who had not drafted me and yeah. give it another shot. That is amazing. So you end up playing with the Pacers. You played two seasons with the Pacers. Played two seasons with the Pacers, got fired the third season. Yeah, that's unbelievable. But you got to play under Larry Legend. Yes, I mean, I and you got to play with Reggie Miller, which and Mark Jackson and Mark Jackson. The list of all the greats that it was on blue and on a great team, like a great team. Uh, you know, uh, if you if you watch the Last Dance, I mean, that was our that was my yeah. rookie year. That was our Indiana Pacers team that played the Bulls. Took him to Game Seven in the Eastern Conference Finals. So back to the question I asked earlier about college. Now you're the Mormon kid playing in the NBA. I mean, now all of a sudden, you know, there's the baller lifestyle that everybody sees. You know, now I don't know specifically about those guys. You don't think baller necessarily when you think of Mark Jackson and Reggie Miller. You know, they're not exactly you know big baller lifestyle guys. But yeah. you're still you're the Mormon kid from the West Coast. You know, you didn't. You must have stood out a little bit. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> and, you know, I learned, I actually, yeah, I walked into the gym so intimidated by these great players and great coaches that I'd watched my whole, you know, Reggie at the time was a 10-year vet. I'd been watching him since I was in high school. He was a star in the NBA. Yeah, one of the greatest the shooters Mark of all time. And everybody else, yeah. Yeah. So I'd been watching these guys in the league forever. And of course, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, that, those are my two heroes growing up after Sebastian Coe, right? And so yeah. um, and so going there every day was just like, it was almost like your head spinning. Um, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the, and this is pretty descriptive of my experience and what I learned about these great men. So um, so we're, we're in training camp. We went to Disney World. This is my first NBA veteran training camp. And so we go to Disneyland and we kind of locked in some condos there and had a private gym that we worked at for a week. And it was the beginning of two a days. And so we went down there and practiced in the morning, went back, ice, rest, recover and practice in the afternoon and then try and recover in the night to do it again. And, um, and it was probably like the third of six days where I learned, I kind of got word that it was a team tradition that they would all go to a adult entertainment place um, to break camp players only, no coaches, 
but mandatory for players. And so clearly this was super concerning for me because that was not an establishment that, that I was prepared to frequent. And, um, and so, but I still was like nervous and awe in awe talking to any of these guys, right? Like I was nervous talking to them and we're competing every day. Like my life depends on it, but I hadn't had real conversation with any of these guys at the time. So uh, I'll never forget. It was like, the, you know, I kind of stewed over it for a day and what am I going to do? And my biggest fear was that, you know, my avenue to make the team as a rookie was going to be just being the greatest teammate of all time. Right. I had mm. to win that area. And, and so not a good start to say, you know, I'm not going to the first mandatory team act players only activity. So I sweated it out, was super nervous, thought about it long and hard. And after the practice, the, the evening practice, the night before I called Reggie, I kind of grabbed Reggie and I can still, I mean, I can feel it as I'm saying it right now. Just the second I walked up to him, it was like, Reggie, can I talk to you? I started turning bright red. We just finished practice. We're in a full sweat. And so I just kind of got him uh, on the side of the court by himself. And I was like, Hey, I know about this deal tomorrow. And, and I want to be a great teammate. That means so much to me, but, I just, you know, I just have some, some deep seated religious convictions and I just can't go with the team. And like, he kind of stopped me mid sentence and I'll never forget it. It was one of the most impactful moments of my life. He looked me right in the eye. This is Reggie Miller, the guy that like made the choke sign of Spike Lee and punched Michael Jordan in the face and everything else. And he looked at me right and I said, Mark, I respect that. Don't you worry about a thing. I'll take care of it. Wow. And you think about it, you're in that moment where you are so vulnerable. Like for me, I mean, it's not vulnerable. Like maybe it's hard to understand, but for me, it was like my life's work on the line. Yeah. And 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 I had to just kind of lay it out there. And locker rooms are brutal places. Like there's no safe quarter. And it's one of the great things about locker rooms, right? But here is a fresh rookie. You didn't know anything. I had to go to Reggie and just say, you can do to me what you want, but this is what I have to do. And for him to respond that way. And then especially with that team, with those veteran guys who were such incredible human beings, even though they're life decisions were wildly different than mine their core of like who they are had this deep-seated kind of honor about them and um i'll love him forever for that moment and a hundred others in the ensuing two years i was blessed I, i was blessed to be able to be around these great men and then and then we had so many follow ups to that where guys were like okay so hold on are you serious that you're saying that you do this and this and believe that and whatever. And, and it, you know, from that moment on, it seemed like we were able to have these really incredible open conversations where, you know, it's not like guys came flocking to change the decision-making process in their life, but, but we certainly got to share where we were coming from. And it was, I, I just, I, I love those guys forever because we we're able to do that. Uh, that is just awesome. Mark, that is so cool. And so then you moved around the league a little bit. You played out of country for a while. Dude, you had a full basketball career. I mean, <laughs> like, how awesome is that? Like, and, and you know, I look at it and I, you know, you played for the Bucks, which now, now the world champion Bucks, you know, which is kind of exciting. You played for the Knicks. 
that blows my mind. Like, yeah. I mean, the fact that you got to play in MSG, do yeah. you, when you look back at your basketball career, do you have a favorite moment in the NBA? Oh man, there's so many. And they're sure. so like, they're so nondescript in terms of like incredible accomplishment on the court. Um, because I was a bad player, but, but like, dude, you're selling it, yourself it, way too short. Well, well, I mean, all relative. Right. But, but, um, I mean, there's, it's just too, it's too, it's too many to count. Like, you know, that moment with Reggie, like I can tell you 50 stories like that. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, when I went to the Knicks, like I grew up in New York. Okay. Like I would take the train to the city with my dad to spend the day with him at work. The New York Knicks, you know, New York Knicks have been bad for so long that maybe this generation doesn't really understand, but Madison square garden is the world's most famous arena. And it really is. I mean, you, you take the subway down and you come out of Penn station and you walk up on 34th and you're right there. And it's Madison square garden right in the middle of the city. And you walk into that arena and the people that you see, it just is. And so I'll never forget, you know, I'd been fired from the bucks and I just feel like, ah, if I could just make one more team, if I could make three teams, it would almost be like you were a legit NBA guy, right? And so interesting, I mean, you got to edit this out because we're not on time, but I'll tell you the story anyway. So I am, so I'm trying out for teams. I actually had spent some time in Phoenix. No, 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 that was the next year. I spent some bounce around teams in the summer trying to find a place. And then I got an invite to New York to come try out to make the training camp roster. So you you make the training camp roster and you're still 10 spots away from actually making the roster. I had to do a tryout just to make the training camp. So brought me in with a, a kind of local hero from St. John's and we just did a workout together. It was actually on. So we flew in September 10th. It was actually September 11th, two, two that I was in white plains in the next mm. practice gym doing a workout. And I'll never forget the night before at the hotel pacing outside like 10 30 11 o'clock talking to Leanne on the phone just being like i'll give i just want this so bad like we could be in new york we could play for the knicks like just gotta find a way and so we went to the workout and another really fun moment this tells you like the best part of my career so we're in this workout and they killed us like they it was just the two of us they killed us we were running full court drills you know, we're doing a shooting drills, full court, all kind of stuff off the bounce. And then we, then we, like the last half an hour, we played one-on-one in the post. And you ever seen two really tired, exhausted, high pressure filled guys playing one-on-one in the post? It just was a slug fest. It was a foul mania, right? Mm-hmm. And just trying to survive to the end of the workout and kind of earn your way on. It's like, it was like survivor. I mean, it was it. One of us was getting the invite. Last man standing. And so it's Don Chaney. Uh, you might remember from Houston. Uh, he's the yep. head coach and, was, um, you know, the, the kind of the front office guys just all sitting there on the sideline and we're playing. And then the guy that I was competing against in the post threw an elbow and caught me right on the eye, blood just dripping down my face. And so Don stands up, the GM stands up, trainer starts coming out. And then I, and Don's kind of like, okay, and Don's super soft. Boy. He's like, okay, guys, that's enough. That's enough. And so in a mo- in my greatest moment of my NBA career, you know, you're filled with so much adrenaline. I turned to the bench and he's like, we're stopping because of a little blood. I thought this was the New York Knicks. <laughs> and so Don sat back down. The GM sat back no down. No way. The guy I was competing against just like dropped his head and shook his head. 
And I was like, let's go. Cause I was like, I deserve myself a, a, a invite to camp. And so we played for 10 more minutes. Don was like, okay, go ahead. We played for 10 more minutes and went out and I went back to the airport and I was like, I literally, I'm in, I'm in LaGuardia and I think I was one of 10 people in the whole airport. If you remember back then, guys, I was so blessed to, to be able to be around these people. It was really, it was just an unbelievable journey in the league. That, Mark, what a blessed life you have had. I mean, you drop, you, you keep bringing up names of just people that you got to rub shoulders with true giants, you know, yeah. and just an incredible experience. Uh, somewhere, so somewhere in here, you had gotten married. I want to yeah. make sure we catch that because I know that your, your family is a big deal. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what year was that that you got married? So I met Leanne the second year I was with the Pacers. So it was my, it was my third year out of college. Um, she was actually, so I actually met her through her brother. Uh, he, he gave me the greatest gift you could ever imagine. <laughs> so Leanne's dad is Lynn Archibald, who was a head coach at the University of Utah. Oh, yeah. Uh, men's basketball for a long yeah, time. Yeah, sure. And then he, Lynn actually recruited me when he was at Arizona State. Mm. And um, I got to know him all, but didn't know anybody in the family. And then I, I met Damon actually through basketball circuits. And Damon called me randomly six months later. He's like, hey, listen, my si-. so Leanne was David Letterman's personal assistant, the late show. And oh, no so, kidding. Wow. So Damon called me and he's like, hey, next time you guys play the Knicks, you got to call my sister. She'll get you tickets to the show. And so I did, man. And then I had new, I, I mean, she's the most amazing woman I've ever met in my life. And so we got we got married the summer after my second year with the Pacers, and then she's been on this crazy odyssey. Uh, we've done it together ever since, and it's it's been unbelievable. Uh, what an incredible ride! You finish up at the NBA. Uh, did you know what you wanted to do next? Did you have a vision for your life? Like, was coaching in your sights from the minute you left the NBA? No, I never <laughs> wanted to be a coach. Wow! Uh, and then. Um, you know, it's our, I mean, we, we actually thought our career was going to be over the first year in the league. It just kept dragging on and on inexplicably. We kept tricking people. And so we, every year we we're trying to prepare. And, you know, I went and took the LSAT. I took the GREs one summer. We worked one summer to start opening subway franchises, which we actually never pulled the trigger because they, I was like, I just can't wear those brown and yellow uniforms. That's what they were at the time. And so, because we're all trying to figure out what to do after. And then when I was in Milwaukee, I played for the Bucks for a couple of years and two really special years there. And we had a bunch of people in our ward that were physicians and we were doing some stuff with the Bucks in the hospital. And, and I uh, actually started taking classes at Marquette, uh, some summer classes, post-bac science classes. I was an English major in college and then kind of fell in love with the process. And so our last three years in the league, we were just we took postback classes from from Marquette when I was with the Bucks, and then from NYU and Columbia when I was with the Knicks, and then from uh, University of Colorado when I was with Denver. Finally finished up, took the MCAT, uh, you know, was accepted uh, to medical school before my last uh, year with the Nuggets when I got fired, and then we went straight to straight to school. So, how did coaching come into your life then? Well. Um, so in all honesty, like the last year as we were really kind of digging into medical school, we started talking about it a little bit. And um, I just was like, I just, my whole life has been basketball. I got to go do something different. I just was hungry to try something different. Yeah. So we went to medical school 
probably after my first year, when the second, when the spring rolled around my first year at Columbia, I kind of like got a little antsy and I kind of, it's March madness. It's just like, it's a disease. man. (laughs) Sure. And so I actually made a couple calls my, the spring of my first year of medical school. I called coach Fox who was at Nevada. I called coach Patino and I called coach Nance and all three of them. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm in medical school. I like it. It's an incredible, noble profession, but I, you know, I'm kind of thinking about maybe coaching and coach Fox said, don't you dare never. And coach Nance was like, don't you dare never. And coach Patino was like, Mark, that's genius. <laughs> you have to do this. And so I got all excited finished my day, got home late that night. And I told him, I'm like, I talked to Coach Patino today. And he was like, hey, maybe we should do this. Um, literally, I remember exactly where I was. I was in the sciences library at the medical center the next morning. And Coach Pete is on my phone. I'm like, I think he's going to offer me a job. And he picked up the phone. He's like, Mark, don't you dare do this. So that he, he just had a, he had a blip one day. He was like, he thought it was a good day. <laughs> So then we went through three more years. You know, we were just starting our fourth year and Coach Fox, I kind of kept in touch with all those guys. I love them so much. And then Coach Fox got the job at Georgia right before I started my fourth year. He's like, if you're ever going to come, now's the time to come. Leanne and I struggled with it for a month, prayerful, temple, fighting, trying to figure it out. And finally, we made the decision to go and, and, uh, and we've been super blessed ever since. Yeah. And so have all the patients that I probably would have... <laughs> All right, let's get to some people uh, who live near me who are very blessed. You end up, uh, much like a pioneer, making your way out to Utah. UVU drags you out to Utah. Was UVU your first head coaching job? Uh, Yeah, it was. So I actually came to be, I actually had the incredible privilege of coaching. Oh, you worked with Coach Rose. Coach Rose. Yes. That's how I came out West. I was was at Georgia and then I was at Wake Forest and then, and then Dave Rice left and took the job at UNLV, and and Coach Rose uh, allowed me right. to talk, and then I come in to work for him. And I got four years of incredible mentorship from him, and then took the head job at Utah Valley. Yeah, how's that transition going? From first of all, Coach Rose, just an awesome, awesome man. Yep. So you got mentored. I mean, geez, your whole career, your whole life, you've been mentored by the best. Yep. Then what's it like stepping up and suddenly you're the man at UVU? Um, it was surprising in a lot of ways, you know, I'll tell you something interesting and you guys are going to be able to relate to this, I think. So as an assistant for six years, it, b- between those three schools, you are working and doing nonstop. In fact, at one point coach, uh, you know, just wanted some continuity of voices. So coach Rose had me doing every scout. And so it was kind of like, you're like, it's an all nighter before every single scout and you end up, mm. it just is like. You're just like, can't even function, but you're just doing nonstop. And what I found at at Utah Valley is you stepped into like a different role of leadership was I actually was craving time to think. Like I needed to go, I needed to go ponder. I think that's such a powerful word in and outside the gospel is pondering. And I needed time to ponder and like be prayerful and, and also ponder you know, and just like think and, and, you know, you could say receive inspiration or feel insights or fi- hear voices from 
you know, now podcasts or authors or friends or guidance or whatever, kind of distill all that because now my most important responsibility was kind of leading and directing, not just where we're going with words and actions, but also how we feel as a team and what our identity is a team. And so I just, that was the most surprising thing to me is I just felt this like desperation to have time to think. Uh, incredible. And then all of a sudden, if you are a Latter-day Saint, there is just no higher calling than coaching BYU basketball. How did that come about? Well, um, so I, I, you know, I really didn't think I would ever coach at BYU. One, because I, I wasn't sure I was a great fit for it. And two, because I expect Coach Rose to coach for the next 20 years, right? I mean, he yeah. certainly is the best coach that's ever coached here and had the best results. And, you know, minus um, some some health issues, which, of course, he's beaten back and battled down, he would still be coaching. Him. And um, so the whole thing came about in a in a really, really incredibly surprising way. I was actually, you know, we finished, we were playing a postseason, and we lost our game in Florida. And so I was actually taking a, I was involved in a job and I, I couldn't go interview in person until we were done and they kind of waiting for me. And so I got on a, a red eye, uh, not that true, a super early flight right after the game, flew separate from the team, came to Salt Lake. Leanne actually handed me a change of clothes and then I flew to where I was going to do this interview. And um, when I landed, all of a sudden, my phone was blown up with this stuff about Coach Rose announcing his retirement. And so I, then I went to this other interview. After I finished the interview, I got a couple calls from, uh, you know, um, athletic department guys, Tom and, and Brian, and talked to them for a while. And that began the process of trying to figure all that out. Incredible. Incredible. And like I said, you know, as a Latter-day Saint, it just does not get much, you know, bigger and higher than that. I mean, that's that's a huge, huge responsibility. But man, you stepped up and were you, were you like, how rewarding was it to have that first season where you guys just played amazing ball? Yeah. I mean, this is a, you know, BYU is an incredible place. Um, it's not perfect. Like, you know, we're a work in progress like everyone else, but it's an incredible place and the commitment that these guys make and what they bring to the table is really special. And then I was just so happy for these guys you know, I'll never forget, you know, we had a, everything happens so fast and so condensed. You don't get to, you know, especially in this job carousel, taking a new job and leaving an old job. I didn't actually get to even tell my guys on my team before somebody leaked it out. So my guys, you, you I didn't even get to, to break the news to mm. them. And I didn't, of course, I didn't get to break the news to the guys at BYU. So I walked into the BYU locker room for the first time a couple of hours after the deal's broken. And I think just after or just before maybe my press conference and um, all those guys are looking at me sideways, you know, they're uh, you know, they're, they're, they've just lost a legendary coach unexpectedly. And they got this guy walking in the gym, you know, you know, saying he's going to demand all kind of stuff. And so we sat in my locker room. And I think a lot of those guys were like, this is not good. It's not good for BYU. It's not good for our career. This is, this is going to be a step backwards, everything else. And guys that had endured a lot of frustration. None of those guys had been in the NCAA tournament in their whole career. And it was a senior heavy team, right? So they had some, some real disappointment while they were there. And so, of course, 100% their minds were filled with doubt. 
And then they just sowed so much courage and commitment to like transform that down into belief. And then like, I mean, uh, like it's one of the, the, that season, that first season here with those seniors, I don't know how it can get more rewarding than that. It was such a, it was such a beautiful thing to watch them start to believe that they could beat everybody that they could actually do what they'd always dreamed of doing that they could actually become the players that they thought they were going to become years earlier and to get to shepherd them through that and then be a bear witness to it it, this was super humbling and then of course cougar nation jumping on board like they do man it was spectacular I'll, i'll forever be grateful for that and now you cannot walk into a Costa Vida in Provo without everybody knowing who you are and wanting to get pictures with you. And man, I'm telling you, and it's exciting. What you've done with the program is just phenomenal. And, you know, as a BYU fan and a basketball fan, and I know I speak for Gene, who's been on the call here with us, who's a huge BYU fan. We're also grateful that you're here. And and I think you're going to have a long tenure and a huge legacy here at BYU. And I'll just tell you, you're, you're very humble about your career, but we are so blessed to have you. And again, those building blocks that the coach Patinos and the Reggie Millers and all of that for us to be able to get that in Provo through you is just a phenomenal blessing. And this has been, this has been such a thrill for me. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We'll be cheering uh, for the Cougars all the way through, but we're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, Mark, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Well, I can tell you, I love this gospel. Um, you know, I, I always say this, uh, you, that, you know, I like sometimes Leanne gets mad at me. She's like, why do you say you got fired so many times? And, and I actually like to say it because it's really a microcosm of my life. Like my life is failure after failure after failure. And I don't say that feeling sorry for myself. I say that feeling grateful because, because none of those failures are final. And, and this gospel, this, this atonement, these second chances that Jesus purchased for every single one of us, is the greatest gift ever. So when you ask me what the gospel, you know, what this being a member of the church and, and more than being a member of the church is just, just, just having a testimony of the truthfulness of this gospel. It means that I get second chances that, you know, my, my, my hero in the scriptures, maybe my number one hero is Peter. I, I love talking about Peter and Peter, you know, so many times his first instinct is wrong. Um, and then, but the thing that's extraordinary, Peter is, you know, we talk about this at the last supper all the time where Jesus goes to each of the apostles and he washes their feet and then he gets to Peter and he wants to wash Peter's feet. And like all of us would be like, he's like, you're not washing my feet. You're the savior. I should be washing your feet in all the sincerity and humility that you can imagine in that moment. And he's so emphatic about, it. I mean, I don't know if he is, but when I read the scripture, I think he's emphatic about it. And then the Savior just simply says, hey, if you won't let me wash your feet, then you'll have no part with me. And so Peter doesn't walk away in shame, which is such an, there's no place for shame in this gospel, by the way. And he doesn't, he doesn't fight back with his pride. He just accepts 
this gift that we all get of second chances and he accepts it immediately. No shame, no pride. And so immediately says, fine, then please, you know, this is an embarrassing moment. This is the guy that is the rock of church. You know, he's been, that Jesus told me to be the rock of the church. And here he's the only apostle that's, that's failed in this idea of letting Jesus wash his feet. He could be so, you know, offended. You could have all these emotions, but he doesn't immediately says, fine. If, if that's what it takes to be with you, then wash my hands and my head and my feet and everything. I want to be fully with you. And this gospel, for all the times I fail and my girls fail and we fall short, the fact that we get to immediately accept the gift of God's grace uh, uh, that Jesus purchased for us and we get to try again is is the greatest gift that any of us could have as human beings. And that's what the gospel means to me. And it's it's been a blessing to my life and my family's life. And we'll, it, it is uh, the cornerstone of everything we believe. He is a husband, a father. He is an NCAA champion, a former NBA star. And now he is the head of the BYU Cougars basketball team, Mark Pope. Thank you for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And my special thanks to my guest, Mark Pope. What an amazing guy. And my apologies to all of you listeners for how much I fanboyed uh, out over meeting Mark and all of the uh, inside basketball questions and things that we talked about. I just was so excited to meet Mark. And uh, what a good man. He is doing so many good things in this world. Thank you, Mark. This week in my Latter-day life, I've been processing something that uh, happened couple of weeks ago that's been really difficult. Um, my friend Jerry passed away, and Jerry and I are the same age. We were in the mission together, and then he moved just one street over from me. And Jerry and I have been close uh, all these years, and especially over the past seven or eight years, we've been really, really close and have regularly texted each other and called each other. We got together for fights uh, for UFC, like Ultimate Fighting, and for uh, different events. And I just love Jerry. And he died very suddenly and very unexpectedly. And he leaves behind a couple of teenage children as well as his wife. And this was all really difficult for me to process. I, I've cried quite a bit over this. It has not been easy. And currently, I'm up in Oregon by myself doing some work up here on the Oregon coast uh, and have been here for a few days. And as I've gone for long walks on the beach, I've been able to ponder and try to process all of this. We had a memorial service for Jerry last week, and it was just amazing to see all the people who loved him and were so sad to see him no longer here. And I feel that. I feel that intense sadness. Sometimes it's just pain. It comes across as painful, like, ouch, <laughs> I can't believe how bad it is. But every time as I pray about it, the Holy Ghost comes in and comforts me. And sometimes he comforts me with sweet memories. And sometimes I feel the Spirit knowing that Jerry goes on and uh, that I'll see him again one day. Other times he comforts me by a loved one calling me or one of our former mission buddies, you know, we spent um, almost two years on the mission together. We were in, in at about the same time. 
Uh, and so we have a lot of mutual mission friends who have called, and we've talked about Jerry and how much we love him. And I'm so grateful for the spirit. I don't know what I would do without it. I haven't had to process a death without the spirit, and it's such a tremendous blessing to have it. You know, there are times where people will ask me, are you sure you believe in your church? People who are not members, and they'll ask me that. And I've even had people who have said, well, are you sure? What Do you, do you maybe just want to believe? Maybe it's just that you want it to be true. And I would say, I believe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I believe in the restored gospel. And totally separate and entirely nothing to do with the fact that I believe that it's true, I want it to be true. Those things are completely separate from each other, but they are both true because I want to one day see Jerry again and my grandparents and my brother and so many others who have passed. I want it all to be true. I want the work to go on. But that is separate from the fact that I have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I know it's true. I'm so grateful for this earthly experience that we're having, grateful for friends like Jerry, and thankful that I still get to go on in this sojourn here on this earth and look forward to someday when I get to see all these people and when I get to see my Savior again. I'm so thankful for him. What a blessing it is to have the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a true gift and one that I don't take lightly, and it makes it a whole lot easier to say goodbye. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for listening again this week. If you know someone who would enjoy this type of content, if you could share it with them, boy, that means a lot to us. And also, we could really use some good reviews, especially on Apple Podcast. If you could give us a five-star review and leave a few words, that sure does help us out to be found in the algorithm. The Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier. I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>